So this morning is our final story of Revelation. And when you go through the story of Revelation and, you, and you're reading through it, I, I'm going to take a tiny bit of extra liberty this morning because I think what John is trying to express, actually there isn't really words to describe it because it's, it's not something that you can really put to words because I think what he's feeling and experiencing is actually completely outside of human understanding. And so in order to do that, I think it's important to remember the tonal shifts, the narrative shifts, where this story starts. I imagine on a beach in Patmos where John is exiled, an elderly man who's a part of this Christian movement. Before any real consequential persecution, it's local persecution that kind of puts him here. And he has this vision of the risen Jesus, not the Jesus as a babe, not the Jesus as a wandering preacher, not even the resurrected Jesus, the full incarnate God in the flesh version of Jesus, holding the keys to death in Hades. And Jesus says, you're going you're to see stuff, write down what you see. And John goes into this wild, incredible vision of things that are happening, that have happened and there are yet to come. And he sees the throne room of God, and he sees the one seated on the throne, and he sees the elders and the beasts and the scroll that no one can open except the lamb that's slain, which begins this cascade of judgment and wrath upon the earth. And then he sees this cosmic battle playing in the skies, where this dragon is trying to eat the child, which is whisked away to the throne, and the dragon falls to earth, and it's clear to John that it's actually the serpent, it's the devil, it's Satan. And Satan then is so furious and angry and hateful towards the one on the throne and towards the child, Christ, that he tries everything in his power to destroy God's creation. He tries to ravage it, brutalize it, pillage it, and most of all to make people follow him instead of the one. So they take on his mark on their heads and their foreheads, and they become a part of his tribe, his ethos, his destruction. And John's seeing all this, and he's drumming up armies of the earth, and he's destroying every good thing that God has done. And then John sees the, the woman, the harlot, on top of this beast, luring people up, but she is also a slave to the beast. She's also a slave to the dragon. And as people come to her, they're, they're lost in this false ecstasy of games and lust and greed and wine. And every good thing that God had done, especially his creatures, his people, are being marred and destroyed. We'll finally come to penultimate battle where the beast wars against the rider on the white horse. And the sword that comes out of the rider's mouth is true. And the battle is swift and it's over. And the dragon is chained up and thrown into prison. And here is where the story picks up and here's where it finds its end. And here's where I think there's a shift. Because what John is now seeing, he actually, I think, struggles to describe. Because he's not 
not just seeing visions. He's not just seeing things with the eyes, tangible creatures and stuff happening. He is now feeling stuff. He's feeling something new. Something that no one, none of us have ever actually felt. Because while the dragon is in prison, locked away, something ascends on the earth. There's a new person on the throne. There's a new ruler residing over the whole earth and all its inhabitants. And it's Christ. John now sees Jesus reigning on earth. And the saints along with him. And so there's a new world order that John is now witnessing in this, as this vision unfolds of Jesus actually running the government. Jesus actually setting the moral code. Jesus actually in the streets and around with his people in authority. And the world begins to dramatically, radically change. It looks and smells and tastes and sounds and feels like Jesus everywhere during his reign. And as the years go by, there's this timelessness in, as time is passing. There's this beauty in this wholeness. And John is beginning to feel things that he, he really can't understand. Wholeness. Completeness. Love. Yet, there's still a twinge of tension. Because in his eye, every day, the dragon in its cage just gets a little bit larger in his eye. There's still a tension. There's still an unresolved part of this reign of Christ. And as the dragon gets closer and closer into view, he can see it pacing through the cage, and he can see it muttering something. It's talking to itself back and forth. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, as time passes on and on, he, he realizes the dragon is actually counting. He's counting. He's counting the seconds. He's counting the days. He's counting the weeks. He's counting the years. And the years pass and pass and pass. And life on earth becomes this fuller depiction of Christ. But John can't ignore this dragon getting closer and closer into view. 900 years pass. 950 years pass. 998, 999, 1,000. The dragon is now in John's vision, full. And he's seeing it for the first time up close in its full, hideous, ugly monstrosity. It's bigger than he imagined, it is smaller than he imagined, it's weaker than he imagined, and it's fiercer than he imagined. But there's now a desperation in the dragon's eye. Because after this thousand years, it has been waiting and waiting and waiting for this moment. Because the angel who had the keys in the first place, who locked it up in the first place, walks over to the gate of the prison. And heaven and earth go quiet. And you can hear the jingle of the chains as it enters into the lock and clicks over. And the lock that had bound this dragon for a thousand years falls. And the door to the prison opens. And there's a pause. And the dragon steps forward quietly, slowly, like a cat pawing the ground. And it moves towards the angel. And John has this feeling, this idea, this remembrance 
that even now, God offers this beast clemency. Even now, like a conquered foe in every tribe and culture, like a conquered king, this dragon is being offered a chance at redemption. And as it lurks forward, it bows its head to the angel. And John gasps, is this, what, will he? Will he take clemency? Will he submit to God? Snap. The dragon reaches out for the angel's head and misses. Desperation in its eyes, it shrieks and howls. Now not only full of hate, now with vengeful desperation because the world that it had worked so hard to destroy is now totally revitalized. And it scurries off to the corners of the earth to drum up any hidden evil that was there. And in mere moments, as if in waiting themselves, the people of earth who did not want to be under the reign of Christ follow along with this dragon. And the dragon shouts out to the city of God, we will siege and take the city. And John's heart falls. He can't watch this again. He feels so desperate that he's watching this play out a second time. And yet before the dragon even gets close to the city of God, the earth cracks open like an egg. And the teeth of the earth gape open wide and lava and flame lick out from below. And fire rains down from the sky and wipes hurling the dragon into the lake of fire. In an instant, it's done. And John feels something that no one has ever felt. The relinquishness of evil. It's over. I don't know how long John stands watching this lake of fire and the serpent, the Satan, the dragon that had drummed up so much chaos and hatred and vengeance and death would be lost in the lake of fire forever. But he can't gaze long because something else catches his eye to his right. The enormity, the elegance, the perfection of the very throne of God. And there's one who's sitting on the throne. His presence is exuding. The air and the atmosphere changes. John is breathing fresh life because it's God himself on the throne. And in his hands are the books. The books of the deeds and the book of life. And John it would stare as long as he could, but, but he can't because now to his left are throngs of people. As far as the eye can see, people. And he knows in his spirit that these are the dead raised to life to stand before the throne. And there's solemnness in the air. There's a there's a somberness in the air because this is the, the great judgment, the final judgment. And one by one, the dead come before the one on the throne. And one by one, 
the book of deeds is opened. And every good deed that the, this, the person had done was accounted for. And every good, bad deed the person had done was accounted for. And then John sees something else that, that actually the sea had also given up its dead. Which is, to, to him, is an impossibility. The chaos of the sea doesn't give back its dead. But yet the one has authority even over the sea. And death and Hades themselves give up the dead. And everyone comes before the throne and has their deeds accounted for with a judgment that is right and true and merciful and compassionate. And those whose names are not found in the book of life, so too are thrown into the lake of fire. And as these moments pass, I imagine John is watching person after person after person until he falls into sleep. And when he wakes, the story changes. John uses words that don't grasp his experience. And I imagine John wakes up and he feels different. His fingers aren't aching with arthritis. The scars on his inside of his feet from pranks yesteryear gone no longer hurt. His bones aren't sore. He's not old. He does, there's no labor in his breath. He feels different. And as he wakes, he feels the ground and, and the grass is greener. And the air is richer. And the dew that's falling off the trees and the fruit that's ripe for picking, are, they look sweeter. He can almost taste them without biting them. The sky is pure. And all around he can see people as, as if they're picnicking in between the flowers and the, and the trees. And the roads that lead, they all kind of silently, joyfully get up and walk towards the center. <coughs> where John then can see what they're looking at is the new holy city ascending down from the heavens. It's perfect. It's complete. It's whole. And as it rests onto the ground, its gates are opened. Its streets made of gold. He can see into the city that there's a river of life flowing through the streets. And on either side are these trees that he knows are the trees of life that bear fruit for eternity. And as he looks down the street, he does not see a single temple erect above all the buildings. And he has no fear of the night. And John knows that he is actually in the new heaven, and the new earth. He is not afraid. He does not fear. He does not feel shame. He does not feel regret. He feels something that no human 
has ever felt, which is the full, whole, unbridled love of God. And a voice calls out. And the voice comes from everywhere. And the voice is echoing from everyone. And they say, look, God himself lives here. God is making his neighborhood here in this city with his people. And there will be no crying and there will be no pain. And there will be no need for temple. There will be no need for mediation. He will walk among the streets with his people. And he will be their God. And in the center of the city is the throne where the Lamb sits and reigns forever and ever and ever. And then the voice of Jesus says so sweetly, Look, he says to John, I'm making everything new. Write it all down. Each word, dependable and accurate. Then he says, it's happened. I am A to Z. I am the beginning. I am the conclusion. From water well, from water of life well, I give freely to the thirsty. It's happened. I'm the beginning and the end. As some time passes, John sees more things and he kind of envelops into this way of life. But the words of Jesus echo. And they say, come. Spirit and the bride, whoever hears the echo, come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will, come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. I encourage you to read the book of Revelation on your own time. And as you do, remember who this story is actually about. It's about Jesus. And there are moments in time and in life when we get like just slivers of what John is seeing. And why I feel that I could take that liberty is because I think when John is trying to describe peace, you know, like the vanquishing of evil, I've never experienced what that's like. I'll never know what that's like on this side of heaven. Yet John had this glimpse of what it will actually feel like to be completely whole, to be completely enveloped in God's love without any inhibitors. And sometimes we get these small slivers of glimpses of this kind of life, of what it might feel like. And I want to I share with you this morning that you, Blue Mountain community, have been a small sliver for me. That you, you have no idea what part you've played in my life. 
you don't know my story. I've shared maybe a little bit with some of you, but I, I don't even know my story. I'm just learning my story because of, of you. And so the long arc of my life, I, I, I'm struck by this, this, the, the timelessness of, of the God that we serve and the life that we live, what Matt, what Matt was sharing today about this witness of community, people who are following Jesus, that our lives weave in and duck and, and dodge and collide at these perfect moments that make no sense. And I, I couldn't have planned it if I ever tried. And yet I get this sliver of what it feels like to be loved wholly. And the impact that that has on a person is, is life-changing. And that's the life we're invited into. And so this story of Revelation is, re is really powerful. But as we, we shared a, couple, a few months ago when we started this all, it's been really abused. It's been really distorted. It's been used as a tool of shame and fear and hatred and isolation. And that is not who Jesus is. And preparing for this story, I never really understood fully. And it struck me that even in the final hour, God gives a chance to even the serpent to come to clemency, even the serpent to repent. And the devil being the devil can't handle it, and he goes off and does his thing, and it's over. If that's the love and mercy of God for even the devil, how much love and mercy does he have for us? The story of the Revelation is a story of Jesus, and it is a resounding story of love. And when you get those slivers of moments where you feel love, they're life-changing. And you've given that to me. You've given that to my family. You'll give that to Jeff. You give that to each other. And that is beautiful. And I'm sitting here, and I feel really sad to leave. I feel really grieved to leave. And simultaneously, I feel totally at peace. Because I know that our lives aren't on chronology. That there's a timelessness to a life shared with Jesus that doesn't follow a timeline. That we're all moving, marching towards death, but who has the keys to death? Just so happens to be the God that we serve. And that one day we will all recollect. And one day we will all frolic in those meadows. And one day we will pass through those gates. And one day we'll sip from the, the river of, of life and eat from its tree and be free from the torment and the pain and, and be in full love. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me and my family a taste of that because it's beautiful. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your invitation to come.
Thank you that you've been extending that invitation for thousands of years. And as many of us maybe wait for the day where you return to wrap it all up and conquer evil, I, I, I suspect that you're still patiently extending the invitation to as many people as you possibly can to come. I thank you that your, your, your water is life. That the tree that you bear fruit from is life. That you are love. And despite all the evils of the world and all the empire of the world and all the, the forces that tear down your creation, you are the one who resides over it, breathes life into it, sustains it, gives it time and space, and redeems it and makes it new. Jesus, I thank you that you've made me new. I thank you that you've woven me into this tiny little church for a short season of life so that I may experience love. And I thank you that this church is, is the kind of church that would do that. And I thank you that there are so many committed followers of you here. That that's their only desire, is to just be agents of you. To be salt and light and people of love. And I thank you that we don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of judgment. That even in our grief of parting and saying goodbye, we don't have to, to fear that it's a forever goodbye that your family is large and that you'll recollect us in your love one day. And I thank you for our time together. I thank you for our space together. I thank you for all these people here and all their families and all their stories. And I pray that you would continue to lead them and guide them and stretch them and hold them. That they would be a people of love for your name's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.